Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 83. Today we are reading and hosting his presence, uh, continuing on in chapter 8. This uh, titled chapter is Removing the Veil of Presence. So I want to thank you for taking the time, and we will just jump in this chapter. God gave Moses very specific directions on how to build his tabernacle. Moses followed every detail and intricacy to produce the dwelling place of God himself. As everything was put into its place, the presence of God filled and rested in his tabernacle. Now, we know that upon the death of Jesus, the veil in the tabernacle was violently torn from top to bottom. This tearing is the same concept the prophet Isaiah used in his prayer, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah 64. The word rend communicates a violent ripping. This tearing was done from heaven to earth, from top to bottom. This tearing was a declaration from heaven that nothing is keeping us from his presence. The veil did not keep God in, nor did it let him out when it tore. The removal of the veil let everyone come and see, just like the stone that was rolled away from the tomb of Christ. It did not let Jesus out. Rather, it allowed us to come and see that he had risen. The removed veil is an invitation for all to come into the Holy of Holies. It was an invitation to step into the secret place reserved only for the high priest during the annual sin atonement. Many people feel unqualified to step into that secret place of intimacy with our God, and in the sense of what they bring, they are unqualified. The blood of Jesus permits us access to places that sin has kept us from. The perfect lamb atoned and atones for past, present, and future sins. We must remain connected to the true vine, Jesus Christ. In him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17:28. I invite you to consider for a moment outside of the many truths the tabernacle communicates to us, that its layout was also God giving us a blueprint for meaningful encounters and a roadmap for hosting presence. Let's first walk through each landmark, and we will discuss in more detail the specifics of them and how they relate to his presence. We will work our way from outer to inner, First, you arrive at the gate leading into the outer courtyard. This is the outermost region of the tabernacle. After passing through the gate and stepping into the outer courtyard, you will proceed 
to the altar of sacrifice. Just beyond that is the hand-washing basin. Moving deeper in, you enter the holy place. In the holy place, you will find three landmarks. On the left wall of this room will be the lamp and the lampstand. Immediately across on the right wall will be the table of shewbread. Opposite the entrance wall, which separates the lamp stand and the shewbread, stands the altar of incense. This holy place was regularly maintained by certain priests in order to keep it acceptable. Deeper into the next room, just past the altar of incense, is the entrance to the most holy place. Within the most holy place, you find the Ark of the Covenant. As God's revelation to us becomes more clear, our understanding will develop and evolve. No doubt, Jesus represents each of those landmarks within the tabernacle. The Lord has taught me that we are responsible for the revelation that He's given us now. What we do with that revelation will determine the next dimension of His grace and goodness. I will walk you through the revelation that He has shared and opened to me. As He opens our minds and understanding, I pray we continue to grow and break free of the limits of our understanding. God is not limited to any singular reality. Like the multifaceted quality of a diamond, so too is our God multidimensional, infinite, and past finding out, all the while remaining accessible. I will remind you that this layout is a roadmap for encountering presence. We will again work inward to the deepest place. The gate leads us into the outer courtyard. Jesus says, I am the narrow gate. No man can get to the Father but by me. The sheep know my voice and will follow me. The shepherd leads his sheep through the gate and into green pastures. The entrance into his presence is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Once we've passed through the gate called Christ, we find ourselves in the outer courtyard. This is what I've called fringe Christianity. This outer courtyard is a place where many find themselves dwelling. They are saved, but living in much less than they are given access to. This is not those who are living in outright sin. This is those living in less than what they have been designed for, much less than our Father has given us birthright into. The prodigal son never stopped being the father's son. He was displaced from designed intention. The son, the coin, the lost sheep are all parables about displacement, not ownership. They never stopped belonging to, but rather they stopped remaining in proximity to the one who cared for them. 
When we glean from the owner's field, we reach only the scraps left by the harvesters. We find ourselves living on meager portions when we were invited to marry the landowner. Jesus is our great Boaz. We were meant to marry and come into intimate covenant with Jesus. Just like a healthy marital relationship requires proximity and intimacy, so does our relationship with the Lord. By way of our relationship, we establish ourselves in the family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Many have gotten married, but never stepped into bridal or beloved identity. They settle for the fringe and live hungry and malnourished. Realize that you are made for more than the outer courtyard. You are made to step into the most holy, abiding place of His presence. Who will ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? Only those with clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 24, verses 3-4. through This verse describes the next landmark feature on his blueprint, the altar of sacrifice and the hand-washing basin. The altar of sacrifice is where we place those things that limit our ability and capacity to enter in. Those things in our lives that have crept into our routines, hobbies, interests, and habits are draining the lifeblood out of our relationship with God. The world, with everything that it has to offer, is conspiring to keep us out of the secret room with our God. The world and all its pleasures use every ounce of influence to draw you back from the most holy place of intimate, proximal devotion. If you've made Jesus your treasure, and believed upon him for your salvation, Satan is powerless to change that. In light of this, Satan's objective then changes. The enemy tries to reroute the believer away from the most holy place. If he cannot keep you from salvation, he will pour all his resources into keeping you out of intimate devotion. The nearest, greatest tragedy to being lost is impotence. Many times, the things that keep you out of the secret place with the Father are good things, such as children's soccer games and unwinding on the couch at the end of the day. We have over-involved ourselves in ministries at church. We have overworked ourselves to pay for the boat the extra car, the additional acreage for the house that just seemed perfect. We have fell very subtly into the Martha mindset. These things are fine and good, but the problem lies within how they distract us from the ultimate good. Martha, Martha, you're worried about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen that better thing, and I will not let you take it away from her. Luke 10, 
verses 41 to 42. Idolatry in North America looks quite different than in other countries or back in biblical times. We do not find ourselves in this country bowing to carvings or statues because we have made gods of ourselves. We bow to self every time we pursue our own desires over God's desires. Examine your heart daily to assess your motivations and allegiances. There are times when, as Christians, we must realign to Christ, our North Star. There are those who have yet to give up the seat to the throne of their heart. The first order Jesus gave to be his follower was to deny yourself, Matthew sixteen twenty four. When we satisfy our desires, we make ourselves God. What I want is what I get, is the unspoken statement of our hearts. This mentality has driven us to actions ranging from mild to the most heinous. This type of thinking occurs in both believers and non-believers, infiltrating our lives and distancing us from intimate relationship with our Lord. Take a step back and assess what drives your heart. Are you pursuing things or Him? There will be one that takes center stage. I realize that there is a spectrum on which you may fall, and often it's not always black or white. However, Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and materialism. Either you will cling to one and reject the other, love one or hate the other. Matthew 16, 24. By putting either God or materialism as your majority focus, you are rejecting one and clinging to the other. Hear this not as condemnation, but as an invitation for change. Decide you will put our Lord first. Time is the declaration of the focus of your heart. On our deathbed, it won't be more money or more things we desire. It will be more time. You can work extra to make more money, but eventually the thing you want more is time. Where you spend that time is an indicator of your value system. Like Abraham placed Isaac upon the altar to the Lord, place those good things upon this altar of sacrifice. Allow the Holy Spirit to show you those inferior good or bad things that are keeping you from the best thing. A good thing can become a bad thing if it keeps you from the best thing. As we lay those things upon the altar of sacrifice, you move next to the hand-washing basin. This is the second component found in Psalm 24, verses 3-4, through 4, which is clean hands. We have, by humble obedience, offered upon the altar our hearts, and we are purified. Next, we cleanse our hands in the basin. Repentance is an act not preached or mentioned often. This is connected to the previously mentioned area, self. 
By repenting, we admit to our wrongdoing and come into agreement with God's desire and will. We align with God's intention for our lives. We abandon our desire and confirm His commands, direction, and guidance. When we repent, we step into God's forgiveness and reconfirm His heart in ours. The word repent does not mean to just ask forgiveness. It also means to change the way you think. The act of repentance does something special. I don't want to undermine the importance of the repentance of sin because I still cling to its value and necessity. I do believe that the finished work of Jesus' death atoned for sins past, present, and future. The finished work of Jesus presents me as a spotless bride, free of blemish, wrinkle, or spot. Does this mean I'm spotless? No. Does this mean that God sees me as spotless because of the blood of His Son? Absolutely. Repentance does a very special thing. It realigns my mind, body, and soul with His Spirit. It declares that I'm not in control and the imperfect nature I possess is dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit in my life to make me more like Jesus every day. As we now begin to step into the holy place, we come upon the lamp and the lampstand. This is the only source of light in the tabernacle, and it is the priest's job to never let the flame go out. Of the many things this represents, I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus tells the church in Ephesus to return to the love they had at first and do the works they did in the beginning. If they do not, he will come to them and remove their lampstand from its place. In chapter 1, Jesus said, The seven stars John saw are the angels or messengers, and the lampstands are the seven churches. This vision that John was shown was specific to these seven churches. There were other churches, but these were selected by Jesus for John to write to. These seven were selected. Why? I believe asking this question with ears to hear permits us to understand something not explicitly said. Jesus is present among the lampstands. In this specific example, Jesus says the lampstands are the seven churches, and he is present among the lampstands. We know that Jesus is present among all his churches, not just these seven. So what is special about these seven churches? I believe the, that answer is they were places of elevated influence. What do lampstands do? They elevate or project the light. No one has a lamp and puts it under a basket. Light is meant to be projected, not hidden. If they do not repent, Jesus will come and remove their lampstand from its place of influence and elevation. Here is why I believe this fits within the blueprint for meaningful encounter. 
as we enter the holy and elevated place, we will find him there. Jesus is always present, but there are times when we feel his presence more. For me, this is when I turn my awareness towards him and I'm empowered to come up here and see. Revelation 4. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Ask and you will receive. Matthew 7, 7. Jesus tells us within this passage that this encounter is a partnered effect. It is an act on our end that results in his engagement as the answer. This is a critical piece to understand. When we go to that elevated place of seek and find, our awareness of his presence elevates and he is found. Across from the lamp and the lampstand is the table of shewbread. Jesus is the bread of life. He is true food and true drink. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If you let me in, I will dine with you. Revelation 3.20 He will come and fellowship with us if we let him in. As we enter the elevated place and open the door of our hearts to him, he will fellowship with us. As you revisit the interactions Jesus had with the people, no one who encountered him remained unchanged. Many were invited to lasting change. He offered miracles of healing, friendship, understanding, and insight into the kingdom of God. The rich young man, when invited to follow Jesus, refused to sell everything he had and give to the poor. Even this man left Jesus different than he came to him. When you have an encounter with Jesus, you're never the same. This rich man came thinking he had arrived, but discovered that he was actually far from it. Why? He had put his many possessions in place of elevation in the heart where Jesus desired to be and would not let them go. This dining or fellowship is available to everyone who will receive him into their lives. Fellowship is not reserved for church experiences on Sunday morning. Fellowship is what I believe Paul to be speaking of when he said pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 When I pray, I want it to be a dialogue. There are times of prayer when I speak to God, and it's amazing and in line with his intention. I believe he desires to fellowship, not only by making us feel him emotionally, but also to hear him explicitly. Sometimes I make it a point to tell people that God spoke to me recently, and you can see the shock and surprise in their eyes. Have we lost this sense of hearing? Have we lost the expectation of dialogue with our Father? I want people to know that this is available to everyone who desires to know Him in this way. For God's ways to be past finding out, Romans 11.33, is not to say we cannot know Him. It means you never arrive. 
There is always more to him that you can learn and get to know. There are realities about him and truths about his heart to uncover in our journey of learning about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ahead towards the last landmark in the holy place is the altar of incense. I'm immediately reminded of Revelation 5, 8, which says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The Bible is full of many examples where believers of Christ are called saints. This incense that is rising to the nostrils of God are the prayers of saints. As we lift prayers to our Lord, we can know this is a pleasing aroma to our God. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. James 5.16 What God needs is a praying person. Let us now think of incense as it burns. It takes a flame to light. Each person at Pentecost received a personal and individual flame. Every altar built for sacrifice requires a flame. Once the incense is lit, it produces a fragrant, pleasing aroma. So too are the prayers of a son or daughter of God, pleasing to the Father and Son. The incense burns slow and steady. This reminds me of the seed that grows in good soil. It achieves a good root system, reaching deep into the soil where water is available during the scorching hot sun. Sometimes the slow burn allows us to get properly rooted and able to obtain the support necessary in times of scorching heat. When I place a single red drop in a glass of water, over time that color is distributed through the whole of the glass. God's kingdom, illustrated as yeast mixed into the dough, is the same. It starts as a small and concentrated area, and after mixing and distribution becomes integrated until the yeast is present throughout the dough. God's kingdom cannot be stopped nor contained. It spreads as God enfolds himself through the whole of his creation. Creation itself groans for the revealing of the sons of God. Romans 8, 19. Right order occurs when the individual son or daughter realizes their true identity found only in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It is in his life only that they truly find life, meaning, and purpose. His body is true food, and his blood is true drink. In Christ we have life, so we only rediscover it in him. As we make our way into the deepest room, the most holy place, we find the singular item in this room, the Ark of the Covenant. 
Each landmark in the blueprint has been leading us towards the ark. In Exodus 25, 21 through 22, it says, And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is representative of God's presence. It is from the place of presence that he promised to speak with the people's representative. Prior to the tabernacle, as the Israelites moved, the Ark went with them. When they went to battle, the ark would go with them. The ark contained manna, Aaron's budded rod, and the Ten Commandments in stone. These three items highlight unique aspects of God's covenant with his people. The manna shows provision. The budded rod shows selection. And the stone commandments show righteous covenant. The ark represents presence, and contained within presence is his provision, selection, and covenant. Genesis 17, 7 says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. What a glorious offering that he promised to be God to all who acknowledge him as their God. Within his presence, there is an offering of wholeness. As we have found encounter and presence within the most holy place, we must keep in mind that God does not always follow a linear progression in this glorious encounter. I do not suggest that this pathway is always the case. I do believe with all my heart that he has given me an outline to provide some understanding of the components necessary for entrance into his presence. God's grace, mercy, and favor supersedes all. I was relaxing one Sunday after church and noticed how windy it was outside as I peered out our living room window. We have many trees around our house mostly pine and oak trees. As I was watching these trees, God showed me two very interesting realizations. The pine trees did not move in the wind. While just 50 feet away from them, the oak trees were bending and moving nearly to the point of breaking. As I wondered how much more they could bend without breaking, I realized that during a move of God, Two different people sitting in proximity to each other, one may bend in sensitivity to the movements of God while the other remains stationary. The second observation was the wind passing right through the sparse limbs of the pine trees while the thick limbs and dense leaves served as a type of cell for the oak trees. I felt God say, how full do you want to be? I answered, 
I want to be totally full, Lord. Think back to the glass of water. Could you add one more drop of water to the glass, even after calling it full? Is it true to say the glass is full unless it is spilling over? Spilling over is how I want my life and yours to be characterized. I want the evidence of Jesus in my life spilling over in abundance, manifesting God's power and love in every facet of my life walk. I want my life to be a cell for the Holy Spirit to breathe His life into, guiding me into the encounters that the Father has planned for me. One day, I had found that one of our chickens had hatched. It was a late arrival as its egg mates had hatched several days previously. The mother hen had been teaching its elder siblings how to peck and forage for food. She did not seem to be as interested in the late arrival, but we hoped she would be just as motherly towards her. We checked on her before closing them in for the night, and all was well. On Sunday morning, as we left for church, I checked the chicks and mother hen. The chick had died during the night. Since I know my God is capable of all things, I laid hands on it, very much expecting God to breathe life back into its lungs. I prayed, and nothing happened. I placed it back in its nest, expecting to come home from church to see it raised to life. As my family rushed back to raise the lid and check on the little chick, we peeked inside to see it still lifeless in the nest. What an opportunity for God to showcase His power and ability to my family. Why would He not choose to demonstrate Himself in this way to make a lasting impression on our whole household? While I still don't have this answer, I do believe asking Him for understanding pleases Him. God not giving me what I want does not define who He is. Too often we allow what we do not see to define what he is doing. We shape our theology based on what we see or do not see. I could very easily think that resurrecting the dead is something limited to the past. I can choose to operate in that mindset moving forward, limiting myself to experiencing only what has worked for me. Many will read this and think it is only a chicken. It's much more than that. It's a proclamation, a loved creature of God. It is a sign and a doorpost of God's mighty redemptive arm. It's a testimony of what God can do and what faith can accomplish. If you think it is merely a chicken, you're failing to see the bigger picture. I will choose every day to see each encounter I face with the same intensity and hopeful anticipation to be God's vessel. I want to demonstrate His supreme power, ultimate love, and tender affection to become a living testimony of how great and good our God is. I will leave you with one final consideration in this matter. As I stated, seeking understanding does please the Father's heart. But when we let understanding delay our action or let understanding 
take our peace, we are robbing God of his rightful place of all knowingness to insist on equality. Our understanding is not a requirement. It is his grace and kindness. If our Father God allows us to peer behind the veil into his mind and heart, then we should consider that a privilege, not a right. Understanding should never be a prerequisite for obedience. Stop worrying about understanding and just obey. Let him be God and we shall be his beloved. That concludes chapter 8. And next time we will pick up in chapter 9, Partnering with Heaven. If it means that I'm close to you, I would trade a million lifetimes for a moment here with you.